0: Coming soon on Out TV.
1: Serial killers seek out people to kill that are available, vulnerable, and often won't be noticed that
0: they're gone. The guy was a monster. The guy did horrible, horrible, horrible things.
1: Killer in the Village detailing the crimes of Bruce MacArthur.
0: Here's this guy who's essentially building this mini gay porn empire. Out of his basement in the rolling hills of Eastern Pennsylvania, this story has sex, it has murder, you know, but somebody real, a real person who had real dreams and real passions died.
1: The Cobra killers investigating the murder of adult film mogul
0: Brian Kosius.
2: I can do what I want with Mocha and hurt her, and there would be no repercussions about.
0: Black trans women, uh, the highest statistics in terms of trans women killed.
2: What I see is blood. Everywhere.
0: Uh, very delicious.
1: Surviving the Block, The Mocha Dawkins Story. Three new queer true crime documentaries.
2: This is an Out TV production. Killers hunt for society's most vulnerable people, hoping they can get away with their heinous crimes. So are LGBTQ people an easy target? What about those from marginalized communities? I'm Justice Harvey Brownstone, and I'm conducting an examination in chief. Charm is harm with a C. The word predator should be said in often. It's a recipe for violence. Some people might suggest that the behavior is a manifestation of the
3: trauma. Regardless of what sort of gender prison they're put into, I mean, why is this happening? All oh, homophobia and transphobia and the hate in the world have disappear.
2: I'm joined by Constable Danielle Bottineau, the LGBTQ Liaison Officer at the Toronto Police Service, and Haran Vijayanathan, Executive Director of the Alliance for South Asian AIDS Prevention, and Buffy Childerhouse, Director of OutTV's Cobra Killer. Hi everybody and thank you so much for joining us. Buffy, your film focuses on an underage sex worker and his relationship with a porn producer. Do you see your film as focusing on vulnerabilities?
3: Well,
1: in this particular relationship, the the young man was seventeen when he went into the industry, and in the U.S., that puts him as a minor and thus made a child porn. But I think the relationship was a lot more complicated, and I think that he was. I would argue that he was absolutely entitled and empowered to make that decision. But I think sometimes in sex work environments, and not to malign them, I'm a, a, a supportive of sex workers absolutely. Um, but I think sometimes in those environments, there can be economic issues, and so it creates a predatory relationship between someone who has power and money and agency and someone who doesn't. So certainly money played a role and there was a predatory relationship from a capitalist perspective. I'll try to not say Marx too quickly, but I don't think it's the traditional model that we see where you have a young person who doesn't feel that they have the the sort of authority and agency to say no. But it's complicated when you get into these environments where people don't feel like they have economic power. The word predator should be said and often isn't.
2: I'm wondering whether there is such a thing as a perfect victim given that we certainly see profiles of predators who perfect their technique.
0: You know, what, all honesty, I mean, speaking to Buffy's point as well, and when you're looking at folks who are new to the country, or are socioeconomically challenged, or folks with mental illness, or when you're looking at addictions, uh, you know, vulnerabilities become the the method in which people pray. Whether it's sexual abuse, or whether it's violence, or whether it's physical violence. I mean, when you're looking at domestic violence situations, oftentimes a woman in a re- heterosexual relationship is uh, is dominated and physically assaulted on a regular basis because the man has the power, and societally, the man has been given the power to do so. And so, when a woman would go and report the, uh, to the police, then there's lots of questions that are not supporting the victim in that nature. So, if you look at it from a domestic violence situation where you've already had those conversations and looked at that, when you look at LGBT communities and folks who are new to the country or even Indigenous communities, that relationship is already set. So you're you're creating this environment for a perfect predator and a perfect prey.
2: It does seem that people who are predatory, whether it's to be a bully whether it's to be a sexual predator, seem to have the skill of tuning in to other people's vulnerabilities. They seem to find people who are perhaps having uh, issues with self-esteem, or having issues with money, having issues with assertiveness, or being afraid because they are marginalized. Well, sometimes boundaries are a privilege,
1: Like you have to have you have to feel like you occupy a space where you feel safe and you feel empowered and you feel like you have agency to say no. So if you remove these things that that allow you to have that authority, then, you know, they're going to smell that you don't have boundaries because that's that's a luxury you can afford.
0: And on to that point, I mean, when you have the legal system who supports the bully versus the victim and re-victimizes victims uh, when it comes to sex work or things that are not societally acceptable, including the queer community, that re- further reinforces the bullying behavior because they can get away with it, right? And that's a historical thing. I mean, the system is changing slowly, but I think, you know, the historical um, accounts and experiences still maintain itself within the system and within society.
2: Do you think that stereotypes and social norms and constructs
0: play a role in crimes against the queer community? Absolutely. So even when the whole uh, Bruce MacArthur situation happened, I actually challenged the Sri Lankan Tamil community specifically when I went to an event and I was uh, or spoke at the event to say, you know, when there was a war happening in Sri Lanka, the Sri Lankan Tamil community here shut down the Gardner Expressway. But when things like domestic violence happens, where there was that young woman who was brutally murdered in the alleyway in Scarborough just recently, when we had two Tamil men that went missing within our community, no one did anything about it. So, you know, we stay away from things that are Sort of perceived as private and not necessarily public. Uh, and so when you have that construct happening within one particular community, that actually happens across communities, including the dominant com- culture as well. So we create what is right and what is wrong, and we uh, continue to maintain that. And unfortunately, the system continues to main that, maintain that for us, and it actually created that for us as a society.
2: Danielle, do you think that being a member of the queer community can make you an easy target? for violent crimes in particular? Is that something you've experienced in in the police I think
3: reality is, and the stats have shown that our community, when it comes to hate crimes, are generally in the top three in Toronto and across Canada. And the most violent is generally against the LGBTQ um, in regards to physical assaults. So that in itself tells you (laughs) that we are that target. But, um, and that's even, that's are the ones that are reported. A lot of them are not reported. And going back to the stereotype question, a lot of the stereotypes feeds into that, and therefore a lot of the community don't want to report based on the history with our um, police, police officers, right? And them being outed again, or them being stigmatized again by our officers, whatever it may be. And that's, that's the kind of the uphill battle that I have as the liaison officer. I have more people coming to me because I don't feel comfortable coming to anybody else. It
2: seems to me that being closeted, and there are many reasons why people remain closeted, m- makes you even more vulnerable. Because if you've been engaged in some act that you're afraid other people will find out about and you get victimized during that encounter, you may well not want to go to the police. And be afraid of the media finding out.
0: Yeah, the media, your family, because I mean, if, if part of the police investigation is if there's a report, they come to your house or they try and meet you somewhere. And what happens if you're seen talking to a police officer and how does that involve your family? So people just want to really stay away from trouble. And if you're a newcomer to the country and you're a refugee, for example, the fear is that if you go to the police and report that you're actually put on an automatic deportation order. So a lot of people who are refugees and further vulnerable socioeconomically, whether they're queer or not and how that impact would actually also happen back home. So when you look at some of the victims of the Bruce MacArthur situation, like Skandaraj um, was out to his uh, brothers, but not to his mother. And they were really worried about what would happen if that information got back out to his mother because his mother might have a heart attack and die. Uh, the fact of his sexual orientation, right? And then after they didn't want to talk about him dying as well in this brutal way. So those kinds of things really play out in various ways within smaller communities. And and again, refugees, sex workers, trans folks particularly um, are are to go and ask for help and supports. And it doesn't also have to be that I personally experience violence from the police. It could also be vicarious because I've had friends and I've seen the history and community going through this. And so that fear automatically dictates how I engage. And folks in the black community, for example, often say that they don't want to go to the police because they've seen too many black people get shot by the police or wrongfully arrested. So whether my interaction with the police is negative or not, my community is, and therefore that's my experience going to as well.
3: And I've noticed that quite a bit with the the work that I do is that especially the young generation who wasn't around in the bathhouse mm-hmm. days who didn't experience any of that, but they've taken it on like they were there. So that becomes a whole other layer for us to kind of break through as a police service to build that re- relationship and rapport.
1: And that's a cultural generational trauma.
2: Absolutely. It seemed to me, as a judge who sits in criminal court all the time, that it was particularly aggravating in the Bruce MacArthur case that he selected victims who were people of color coming from cultures where being gay was very looked down upon. And they were closeted, that they, they they seemed to me to be the most vulnerable victims he could have found.
0: Yeah, in the early days when Skanda and um, Abdul Bazar-Faizi and uh, Maji Kayan went missing, uh, the community did say there is a serial killer because they noticed a pattern of brown men going missing and they haven't been found. So they spoke up about it, but the voice wasn't really strong enough back then because there wasn't a lot of community support. Uh, there was actually stories in the community where, you know, they assumed that they were sent back home because they were men of color or they probably went back to their wives back and wherever they come from, from the burbs. And again, that speaks to the racism that it also exists within the queer community that needs to be addressed as well. But then, you know, and it kind of went off the uh, the side a little bit when it was Andrew Kinsman that was found missing. And so it became about a white man that went missing. Uh, and and that's where, you know, ASAP called racism, homophobia and classism just to figure out what the hell is going on here. Is it another sort of race based uh, lack of investigation? you know, The community knew about it, but it easily gets in quickly as as situations with many folks of color or many marginalized communities. There had to be a huge stink for an inquiry to happen. It's just crazy how things happen and how things need to uh, what needs to happen to get things moving. So no, uh, in community didn't. But I think it's it's important to recognize the fact that when people do go missing and people are raising those concerns that we do need to pay attention, not just missing, but anything that's criminal in nature and hold people accountable and and call uh, call attention to it.
2: Danielle, do you think there's a a sufficient awareness within the police service that people of color, immigrants, people who come from cultures where being gay is something that they struggle with in terms of coming out, uh, that these are particularly vulnerable victims that have to be handled with special care?
3: That's all part of my conversation that I'm having internally, because I think policing in general has um, stuck to the boxes of heteronormativity and what that looks like and research has shown it's still very heteronormative male privilege, right? So they don't think outside the box, right? So they're not they're not going to recognize people's lived experiences. We're having more of a conversation around recognizing and having empathy for individual lived experiences. Even though you haven't experienced it yourself, reality is the person that's talking to you and how they're reacting to officers in uniform, it's coming from somewhere and we need to have a better understanding of that. So those conversations are happening. But it's only started happening within the last couple of years. And as a result, really, of um, the missing person and serial killer investigation.
2: Haran, do you think that there are safe spaces here in Canada for LGBTQ immigrants when they come to Canada?
0: There are safer spaces, but they're fewer than than the need is. Um, so, exa- for example, there are uh, refugee houses and there's a Rainbow Railroad that does a lot of work with bringing folks in. And there's a small little organization like ours. But when, uh, when you know, the government constantly is threatening funding for programs that feed into legal clinics supporting refugees and offering them that information, uh, and there's constant threats to small little organizations like ours with our funding uh, and the accessibility of uh, applying to those funds who really meet the needs of individuals from a culturally sensitive and linguistically appropriate manner and who understands the intersectional history of those individuals, then we further reduce the spaces that are available for people. So there are some... But we need more.
2: Absolutely. Now, we've been talking so far about people of color, but we've also got the issue of age. In Cobra Killer, age played a big role in terms of the daddy and the young stud. Uh, Buffy, what do you think about the statement that intergenerational relationships make in terms of vulnerability?
1: in in particularly in the case of Cobra, you have an older man in his late thirties, early forties, who's having a relationship with younger men. You know, one of the the models for Cobra Video just described it as a mentorship. And I think that, you know, if you're a young man who's untethered from his family because You've been judged because of your sexual choices. Having a relationship with an older person who can kind of show you how to live in a world that is stacked against you, that is not necessarily problematic. That can be a wonderful thing. At the same time, it obviously creates an environment where that older person, instead of offering a kind of like queer mentorship, if you will, can prey on someone who's dislocated from those those supports. But it does set up a dynamic where someone who doesn't have support, someone who doesn't feel that they have guidance can be abused by an older person.
2: So then I can imagine for someone who is a person of color, already marginalized, may already have experienced homophobia and racism. And if they happen to be a sex worker at the same time, you've got a perfect storm of vulnerability that can make them very susceptible to
0: exploitation or worse. That goes back to how we need to strengthen our justice system as well as our policing system, right? And to make it safe for folks to go in and report anything. So I may have made the choice one and, you know, to go in and become a porn star, for example. But then there's a point where it does become abusive, where that nude film of mine can then become collateral to then abuse me and use me in different ways. And when you're a marginalized person, so if a brown person uh, who is a porn star goes to the police and then is it going to be that, are you going to take me seriously and my report seriously? Well, it's like you, made a choice here and we do that to rape victims on a regular basis whether it be in the court system or in the media system or in the policing system and I think that's why it uh, sort of creates that animosity and 80% of folks who experience sexual violence don't report it to the police although they're going to the clinics to get the kits done um, so it's really really looking at the the system and the way the system would need to change to address those vulnerabilities to reduce the vulnerability of an individual and encourage people to go and report and have these conversations I don't think we would um, have an issue with the Me Too movement if women felt comfortable going to get help. I don't think we have an issue with, um, you know, the queer communities feeling comfortable to go to the police and not having the Bruce MacArthur situation. It would be great if trans folks don't go missing, found in the river and then sit in the morgue for six months before they're even identified, even though their blood relatives were looking for them. So, you know, those kinds of things really, really do further marginalize queer communities and in particular trans communities and in particular queer trans people of colour really do get pushed to the margins. And if you're poor, you're gone right even within our within the career community you have to be making a certain amount of money to afford to build, sort of live quote-unquote the lifestyle and fit into that clique um, and if you don't fit into that clique then you you know you don't have even chosen family sometimes and that that's the scary part
2: I think that's very evident when you go to the gay village in Toronto there is a certain expectation in terms of lifestyle and in terms of spending power disposable income what was it like for you as a person of color the first time you went Uh, to the Toronto Gay Village
0: yeah so I actually grew up in Winnipeg and then uh, you know in my youth I went to sort of the Osborne Village area that was known to be the queer area or the arts area of Winnipeg Um, Is that around Portage and Maine no it's a little bit further so it's not that windy Um, all the you know all of us queens would have our hair blown if we uh, if we (laughs) walked down Portage and Maine Um, so we chose a little corner but no and coming from Winnipeg and being uh, a brown person there uh, and sort of being out in the community I was the only brown person so coming to Church in Wellesley I still found myself to be the only sort of out brown person in that area and when I say brown I mean South Asian heritage there are other folks of color that that were there but it was still isolating in that way but it was true like I had to look a certain way and dress a certain way for me to sort of even maneuver through. And that seems sad to me Because coming from my generation,
2: we struggled and worked so hard for equality and inclusivity. And yet what I'm hearing from you is a suggestion that's very well founded, that within our own community, we're very judgmental and not particularly welcoming to everyone
0: no and and so when you you know and that's yeah that's really sad because there's transphobia that it continues to exist the relationships between most gay men's communities and lesbian women's communities are quite fraught with a sort of uh in fighting if you want to call it a little bit there's constant disrespect there and you know when gay men or drag queens uh, make sexist comments it's 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 okay because you know what we're not there sexually so it's okay it's just a joke but really that we don't understand the impact it has on other folks and when we look at racism within our Community as well, like me as a brown man having to work extra hard and being sort of, you know, marginally poor, we're to, having to work extra hard, especially coming into the, into the city without any friends. It really does highlight a lot of things, but also then speaks to, if you look at it from an interne- intersectional perspective, it is a societal norm for gay men to be blah, for lesbian women to be blah and trans folks to be blah. And so it's the stereotypes that start fitting into it, whether it's founded or not.
2: Well, then I can't wait to hear what the <laughs> stereotypes are for Gay and lesbian and trans police officers. Well,
3: I was just going to say, I mean, to be honest with you, I had a really good experience coming out as a queer woman on the job. It was almost, it was expected because I had short hair. I'm a woman <laughs> and I'm in policing. So therefore I must be queer. Um, but so the gay-
2: stereotype actually helped you
3: um, because yes. they expected you to be <laughs> yes. gay, right? But so they o- weren't surprised. But it's done the opposite, obviously, for gay men and, and mm. trans members and non-binary are there
1: Are there trans Members of the Toronto Police Services there are. are minor, there's right? a lot
3: out to me. Okay. But they're not out on the service. Gotcha. But we did have our one visible one that recently came out. And he just got hired in the last class and he was all about being visible and having a voice, uh, which is hugely important. But I think he was a little bit overwhelmed by how much of a wave it was going to create. <laughs> right? I bet. because he he shouldn't become um the, token. the trans police officer. He should become the police officer and create that career first before. Right. Although
2: he will, um, he will be put uh, in a position to speak
3: for all trans people and all. But I'm very protective of him, so. (laughs) I think
2: that's great. He's lucky to have you. I know when I was the first openly gay judge appointed in Canada, I became the gay judge. And when same-sex marriage came along, I was the one that was expected to do all the marriage ceremonies. And whenever there's an issue about sexual orientation, I'm the resource person. And um,
3: I'm happy to pass <laughs> off being the poster child to him, but he's not ready for that yet.
2: I no. think you do become the poster. And I'm sure, Haran, that you are too. You're an executive director of an important organization in our community and in general. And you you are a role model and a spokesperson.
0: Well, thank you for that. But I, th- I always say that I don't speak for the community, right? I I speak to the story. Stories that I hear about the community because my experience is completely different from everyone else's. But then I also have a—I've always had a decent relationship with the police, uh even with York Regional Police when I lived up and worked, and worked in New York Region, and with now with Toronto Police. So that's not the experience. I have to keep that in mind. And when people make me the expert of the South Asian and Middle Eastern community, I always say there is actually people who hate the police, and there are people who love the police, and there's a lot of people in between who really don't know. So I think we have to take all those stories in consideration. But what we can do is look at all the trends and stuff. So. Um, Thank you for the compliment, but I I, I don't speak. For
3: the but, but I also think it's important to note that the flip side of that is that because he's working with us, everybody thinks he's just a yes person for us. And that's not the case. He, <laughs> he has criticized us and been harsh on us when we need to be criticized and be harsh on. And, right and
1: And how is TPS responding to that? Like what kind of latitude and freedom does he have in that environment to actually speak?
3: He's got the direct line of, he can go to the chief, he can go to the head of homicide who's he build a relationship with. Um, I mean, it has like, it's outside of me now. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Which is speaks volumes to people wanting to learn and educate and have those conversations internally. And that's and that talks to
0: the intersectional piece of learning and understanding discrimination, understanding your power and privilege. And you really do need to take that time to review that. And yes, the relationship with Hank Singer as well as um, Deputy McLean, uh, and then going into the chief and also now the police board. So you develop those relationships. And then I do send an email to Hank and it's like, hi, Hank, this happened what went on. And so, and he would respond, he's like, sorry, this happened. Yeah, for sure. And I can then I turn around and explain to the community. And so it's, it's the relationship that we've built and the willingness to learn and understand, but not always defend. And unfortunately, I think that's where the history of the police was, is they would always defend rather than listen and have a conversation.
2: Well, Danielle, do you feel that the police do have sufficient training and sensitivity to manage queer, marginalized uh, victims and perpetrators who may need different, a different standard of care than a privileged white person. For example, a person of color who's a sex worker who's been victimized in some way.
3: I think our, our service is so big and we do have a very active and very supportive sex crimes unit. And I know they work very closely with the sex workers, so I will give them credit any day. But where it trickles down from there, I don't think we have enough of the education. I don't think we have enough of the empathy. I don't think we're doing enough of a job or work in that area, to be completely honest with you. And part of the reason is we get back to stereotypes, right? Policing and sex workers and the stereotype that lies within that, which I don't agree with, but reality is history of policing, right? Um, so I've, I've been trying to get an inroad there and I can tell you that it's been an uphill battle and rightfully so based on the history with our service and the sex workers within Toronto. Um, but I'm hoping to have more of a conversation around that. And I can tell you that one of my colleagues actually in in the UK is actually a full-time liaison officer. So my portfolio is LGBTQ. She's a liaison officer for the sex workers in the UK. So they have that conduit, right? Because at the end of the day, Regardless of what field you're in, if you're a victim of any crime, you deserve to be protected by us. You deserve to be feeling comfortable to report and to get the support that you need, right? But that's not happening. They're not coming to us, rightfully so, but we need to change that conversation.
2: And as Haran has said, which I'm so very impressed by your reference to the justice system, you didn't just stop at the police. And uh, I hear you loud and clear, I think, that we have work to do too. Crown attorneys, victim witness personnel, and judges who, who deal directly in a very fundamental way with perpetrators and victims who have a myriad, uh, a plethora of issues that they, they have to contend with, I'm not so sure that we uh, can be satisfied with how we manage to dispense justice and make sure that the right result occurs and at the same time Have everyone treated with dignity and respect and not be re victimized.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. And I think that's, and that's the key, right? And it was really great during the whole trial process and when, uh, when the Crown was going to present its evidence, um, towards the end. In which Uh, case? In the Bruce MacArthur situation, sorry.
2: Well, there never was a trial. He pleaded guilty. Well, he did,
0: but I mean, towards the end, like during the sentencing and when they were presenting the evidence, um, just for, you know, purposes of the court, you know, the crown attorney actually turned around before the trial actually, or that session actually started and said, we need for you all to take care of yourselves because there's going to be evidence that's provided that actually could cause trauma and could whatever. So take care of yourselves and find the resources that you need, which actually then showed a human side to justice when justice actually seen as a very cold process where this is the process. And for us to be fair and transparent and non-biased, you need to present the information and that's it end of conversation. But there was a human side that was actually really, really great to break that. And I think... If the police can do it, need, the police need to do it and can do it, and I think the justice system needs to start doing that, is how do you find a way to be human and compassionate while ensuring the process is right and, and fair? So then that's a tricky place because again, that's a whole history of the justice system that needs to alter and change and how we look at people needs to change. I mean, working with Justice Epstein on the whole missing persons review, you know, she actually constantly keeps saying how. This has been a really enlightening experience for her because she's meeting with people who are sex workers, who are homeless, who are injection drug users in a different way than she was presented in the court. Although she was compassionate and and engaging with individuals there, but this actually allowed her and afforded her the opportunity to sit down and listen to people, which actually was really, really nice to hear. And I think if we can start moving along that line and looking at the justice system and the police system as a social service system, because that is what it is, then we might be able to figure out how we do that effectively and and change the the stereotype that exists around policing and the justice system.
3: And I think... What you mentioned helped with the policing piece too, because Hank and his team at Homicide were very, very cautious and respectful of what the community was going through. Because this wasn't the only thing we were going through. We were going through the Pride conversation, all the, all the things, Pride conversation, Tess Ritchie, Laura Wells, you name it. And they were very aware of that. And every single time before they put anything in the media or went to a community member, they connected with me. It's like, okay, what should we do? And that doesn't generally happen. Because I'm just a PC and Homicide's up here and they do what they want. Generally, it spoke volumes to me as a community member that they were willing to go that extra
0: step. And what really helped is then Danielle reached out to community members and said, hey, you know what, just the pipeline, look out for this and whatever. And then we were able to prepare to deal with whatever. So it was a clear communication to really serve the community better. And how do you build those partnerships as well?
2: Well, thank you very much, Buffy, Haran, and Danielle, for a very enlightening conversation. I get the feeling that we've only begun to scratch the surface and that we could have gone on much longer. If you're looking for more queer content, head over to outtvgo.com. I'm Harvey Brownstone. Thanks for listening.
1: Our OutTV producers are Bianca Sutton and Philip Webb. Our Yap Films executive producers are Elliot Halpern and Elizabeth Trojan. Produced by Jordan Steinhauer and engineered by Aaron Lockman. This podcast was made in association with Canada Media Fund. Be sure to check out our films Killer in the Village, Cobra Killer, and Surviving the Block on OutTV. Thanks for listening.